Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We are so glad that you are listening in today. As God's people, we are concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Please subscribe to always get the next podcast. Not too long ago, there was a CEO of a Fortune 500 company who pulled into a service station to get gas. He went inside to pay, and when he came out, he noticed his wife engaged in a deep discussion with a service station attendant. It turned out that she knew him. In fact, in high school, before she met her eventual husband, she even used to date that man. The CEO got in the car, and the two drove off in silence. He was feeling pretty good about himself when he finally spoke. I bet I know what you were thinking. I bet you were thinking you're glad you married me, a Fortune 500 CEO, and not him, a service station attendant. No, I was thinking if I'd married him, he'd be the Fortune 500 CEO, and you'd be the service station attendant. (laughs) Wow, maybe not quite what we think when we feel like we've achieved a lot. Success is very desirable. All of us hunger for success, or at least to know that we're going in the right direction in life. But we don't always get the affirmation that we think we need. There's a young man who won admission to college. Instead of writing a letter of congratulations, his father penned this note. Now, it's a good thing to put this business very plainly before you. Do not think I'm going to take the trouble of writing to you long letters after every folly and failure you you commit and undergo. I am certain that if you cannot prevent yourself from leading the idle, useless, unprofitable life that you had during your school days, you will become a mere social wastrel, one of the hundreds of public school failures, and you will denigrate into a shabby, unhappy, and futile existence." Wow, what a letter that is. But it was written from Lord Randolph to his son, Winston Churchill. Hmm. Maybe you've had someone discourage you or say something so sharp to you, it sounds like he was trying to help his son. But instead of helping, they reminded you of everything you got wrong. Perhaps you're good at reminding yourself of your flaws. How do we know when we are successful at life or at anything? Here's some food for thought from John Johnston about success, and he asks us to shift from the idea of success to the idea of excellence. And so he writes these words, and bear with me, it is a little bit long here. Success, he says, offers a hoped-for future goal. Excellence provides a striven-for present standard. Success bases our worth on a comparison with others. Excellent gauges our value by measuring us against our own potential. Success grants its rewards to a few, but it is dreamed of by the multitudes. Excellence is available to all living things, but is accepted by a special few. Success focuses its attention on the external, becoming the tastemaker for the insatiable appetites of the conspicuous consumer. Excellence beams its spotlight on the internal spirit, becoming the quiet but pervasive conscience of the conscientious who yearn for integrity. Success engenders fantasy and a compulsion and a compulsive groping for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. 
excellence brings us to reality, a deep gratitude for the affirming promise of the rainbow. Success encourages expedience and compromise, which prompts us to treat people as a means to our ends. Excellence cultivates principles and consistency, which ensure that we treat all persons as intrinsically valuable ends, the apex of our humanly father's creation. People are the end, not a means to the end. Instead of asking about success, perhaps we are to strive for living with excellence. And today we encounter a passage of scripture about Peter at a moment when he's not very successful, but he lived with excellence and that excellence transformed his life and his relationship with God. In turn, our text today offers us four keys on how to live with excellence, especially in our relationship with God. We can capture those keys with four words, hearing, obeying, understanding, and answering. Let's read the text in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knee and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. If you've attended church for any length of time, you've likely heard the gospel accounts of Jesus calling his disciples. These first disciples were from all walks of life. They're fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. Perhaps they were good at their trades, but none of their trades proclaimed that these men would be great religious leaders. And Luke 5 brings us to the edge of Lake Gennesaret, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. Gennesaret is a place, um, it's a plain located to Gal- next to Galilee that was rich. It was tropical and it was a bountiful place to grow fruit. It was a rich land, but poor in people. The Sea of Galilee was a backwater land of Israel. The sea itself measured, oh, 13 miles by about 7 miles. It was situated 700 feet below sea level. And in Jesus' day, it was estimated that about 15,000 people lived around its shores. And this amounts to several small towns and fishing villages. This was not a region that important people came from. It was a region where people hungered for God and sought to live well for him. So that is a picture we ought to have in our heads of the environment as we read about Jesus teaching to the crowd. The crowd is hungry, and I believe Peter is too. 
but Peter is also tired, and he doesn't feel so successful. He's an experienced fisherman who worked all night with nothing to show for it. On top of that, he has to clean his empty nets in front of a crowd. Everyone can see that he failed last night. If it was me, and I was the guy sitting there on the edge of the water trying to clean my nets, I'd think to myself, can't this Jesus guy teach somewhere else so everyone doesn't have to watch me? Oh, oh, great. You want in the boat? You, Sure, why not? That's what I would think to myself. Oh, good. Now this is going to get even better. I imagine Peter was thinking, well, let's just turn my failure into a stage. Let's put the spotlight on Peter. Peter does not realize that this spotlight will change his life. Jesus is not interested in the success of Peter. He's interested in the excellence buried in Peter. The text shows us four keys to living with excellence. And we see these in Peter, and we should strive to have them in ourselves as well. The first key is in that word hearing, that is, listening to the word of God. The text tells us the people were crowding around Jesus, and they were listening to the word of God. There was a hunger in the people for something more in life. They sought his word. The hunger for God's word was strong, and it was a crowd uh, that was around Jesus, and it tells us, the text tells us the crowd pressed in on Jesus to the point where he felt he needed to gain a little space between them and him and climbing into the boat. And so he gains that space by climbing into the boat. I also think Jesus wants Peter to hear the word of God. I, I wonder what was going on in Peter's mind while he was cleaning the nets and hearing Jesus. Peter was ending a frustrated night. He was exhausted. He was cleaning the nets. And uh, those nets, as he cleaned them, those nets were reminding him that nothing was caught. He worked hard with nothing to show for it. Remember, no fish meant no money that day and no food for his family. And many people uh, in that village and the surrounding area depended on his catch of fish and they'd have nothing as well. Peter was frustrated, understandably so. And there he is hearing the word of God. I say this. Don't wait till you're in a good mood to dig into God's word. Dig into it when you're frustrated, when you're grieved, when you're distracted. Peter was all sorts of distracted. Getting into the Word of God can transform those frustrated moments. And you better believe that God can speak a word that you would never have seen when you're frustrated as opposed to when you're joyful. I can tell you I've had many a moment as a pastor where I've been heartbroken over someone in the congregation who's hurting I'll find it hard to sleep, and so I pray, and I cry out to God in the night, and I read his word. And I can tell you, God's voice has a whole different timber to it in those frustrated moments as opposed to the happy ones. I have learned how precious that voice is in all moments, not just the elated mountaintop moments of life, but the difficult ones too. So don't wait till you feel good to get into God's word. Something else about uh, the people listening to God's word is they're hungry for it. And we need a hunger for God's word. 
And the Bible is full of images of our need to eat the Word of God, to feast on it, to see it as our source of life. Psalm 1 is my favorite psalm, and it gives us a tremendous warning and direction when it comes to feasting on the Word. Psalm 1 asks us to be careful where we, where we try to find life, and he says, ultimately, it, ultimately it tells us through an image of trees next to water that we are to plant ourselves in God's Word. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Can you say you're like a tree planted in God's word? Do you drink deeply from it? Do you depend upon the word for life? Or do you only occasionally drink from the word? I kind of think of it like this because I grew up in Ohio, far from the ocean. I can recall a few vacations, especially when I was a little boy, where my family would go to the ocean. It was just a handful of times. And when I do think of those moments, it's wonderful. I love those memories. Thinking of the time when I dipped my toes in the ocean for the very first time. Thinking of times where I let myself be carried in the waves as I swam along the the shoreline. I can hear the majesty of the waves in my memory. I can see the horizon, that big horizon of the sea, with no sight of land beyond the shore. It's incredible. But I live in Ohio, so eventually I get back in the car and head home. The ocean is not where I live. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, we treat God's word this way. It's wonderful. It's it's majestic. But we don't live there. And when we choose not to live there, we starve ourselves of God's majesty. Please, hunger for the word, hear the word, and live in it. There's another story in the Bible. We talked about it just a few weeks ago when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And when he's tempted, he speaks about our need for a steady diet of God's word to eat it. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says this, he says, it is written, man is, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So apparently we need the word as much as if not more than food. I like what Eugene Peterson writes in his fabulous book about the word of God entitled, Eat This Book. The title alone is telling us what we are to do. We're to eat it, devour it, take it into our lives completely. And he writes these words, Christians feed on scripture. Holy scripture nurtures the holy community as food nurtures the human body. Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture. We assimilate it. We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus's name, hands raised in adoration of the father, feet washed in the company of the son. We need to eat and feast on the word. I wonder if the crowd understands what's happening. They're hearing Jesus teach about the Word of God, but
But have they realized yet that God himself is speaking? Every word that Jesus says is the word of God because he is God. Peter does come to this realization, but it takes him a little bit of time. Thankfully, the word of God can work in us before we fully understand every part of it. I think that's something to rejoice over. I don't have to know it all to reap the benefit. If you want to live with excellence, feast on God's word. Get into it daily. Don't worry about understanding every bit of it. Don't stress if you don't know Greek or Hebrew. I'm glad we don't need to perfectly understand our food to benefit from eating. Make sure you feast deeply on God's word and you will benefit. Now, the next key for excellence is this, obeying, acting on the word of God. We can see it in Peter's words, because you say so, I will let down the nets. The crowd is hearing the word of God, and Peter is listening too, but Peter is asked to take the next step and act on the word. And he does so in two ways. The first is by letting Jesus climb into his boat and use it as a stage to continue teaching the word of God. This is a humbling moment. By letting Jesus on the boat, Peter went from being the nearby fisherman to having his failed expedition under the watchful eye of everyone. Additionally, Peter had to interrupt his chore of cleaning the nets to take Jesus out on his ship. He's asked to act, and that's important. James 1.22 says this, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Perhaps one of the most straightforward scriptures, but it's also one of the, the one which so many of us struggle to do. Do what the word says. We're called to be a people who act, not in our ability, not to know that we are good and that we're moving forward, but a people who are bent on obedience to God. Oswald Chambers says this, one step forward in obedience is worth years of study about it. (laughs) Just do it, right? That's all we got to do. Do what it says. Peter's obedience, it is a small obedience, that first one. And I find that when we're willing to obey God, even just in small ways, God will move in and he will grow us and he'll prepare us for larger tasks. I got to wonder if Peter was not willing to obey in that first moment to let Jesus on the boat so he could teach from the boat, would he have obeyed the second command of Jesus? I kind of think he wouldn't. It would have been easier for him to say no. If Think about it this way. If Peter was on the shore cleaning the nets and Jesus said, let's go fishing, I think Peter would go, I don't think this is a good idea. But Jesus asked Peter, let me in the boat, set out just a little bit so I can teach the crowd. So they're already out in the water a little bit. The nets are already pulled in. And then, because Peter is willing to say yes there, I think he's willing to say yes to the bigger thing. He's already part part of the way there. So say yes in the little, and you'll get better at saying yes in the big. And that second task, that was the impossible moment, a miraculous catch of fish. And here's something I think we need to see. Obedience requires us to recognize the authority of Jesus. I love Peter's response to Jesus when Jesus asks him to go out into the deep waters. He says, Master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. But because you say so, 
I will. When was the last time that you were willing to say to God, Oh, because you say so, I will. In that moment, Jesus is, or Peter is recognizing Jesus' authority, and he puts aside his own authority because he's a fisherman. He knows what to do. Obedience requires us to put aside what we know for what God knows. Think about the situation for a moment. Think about who Jesus is, or at least who Peter knows Jesus to be. Peter knows him to be a teacher, and perhaps he knows that he's a carpenter. And Jesus is telling fishermen how to go catch fish. To the normal eye, something is wrong about this picture. And on top of that, everything Peter knows about fishing is saying that this is the wrong time to go fish. It's daytime. You don't go fishing in the daytime, especially in uh, the Middle East. The sun is up. It's heating the waters up. So the waters are getting warm, so the fish want to dive deeper. And the nets they have only go down about 20 feet into the water. It is actually impossible for them to catch fish during the daytime. It's the wrong time of day. And they're exhausted. But God knows otherwise. Sometimes we must put aside what we know for what God commands, for what God knows. Thirdly, obedience requires us to take a risk. I picture Peter is tired. The cleanup was either done or it's still in progress, I don't know. If they went fishing and they caught nothing, they would be yet more tired and have to clean the nets another time, a second time. And now there's an audience. The crowd would see. And I think you can hear the risk in obeying Jesus. And it's the same for us. There's always a risk in following Jesus, Jesus' commands. But there is also wonder. Peter acts. He obeys. And they set out for those deep waters. They cast a net and catch more fish than they could possibly imagine. I am certain that their nets were ready for anything that they had ever encountered before. But Jesus supplied even more. Peter has to call for help. The other ship comes alongside them. The nets are bursting. The ships are sinking with abundance. This is the hand of God at work. Peter now understands who is in the boat with him. So Peter started with hearing or listening to the word of God. Then he acts upon it. He obeys. And then comes the third part, the third key, understanding. He now encounters the majesty of God. I know that because of his words. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter falls at the feet of Jesus. He sees clearly what he could not before. This carpenter teacher is not an ordinary man, but he is God. Peter had heard the word. He obeyed the word. Now he grows in understanding. He sees God. He understands the majesty of the moment. He falls at Jesus' knees, and he asks Jesus to leave him because he is a sinner. You ever wonder why he responds like this? You know what Peter's doing? He's responding like so many have in the Bible. Isaiah 6-5 is the classic passage where the prophet Isaiah is swept up and he's in the throne of heaven, throne room of heaven, and Isaiah experiences the majesty of God and he sees his own insufficiency. We can read in Isaiah 6-5, it says, 
Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. But this experience, though maybe not quite as um, prominent or majestic, is found throughout the whole Bible, and it looks the same all through. People encounter the power of God, and they realize who they really are in the face of God, and there's some fear and trembling. Let's look at a few more passages in the Bible. There's Genesis 32:30, perhaps maybe much bolder than Isaiah, because Jacob wrestles with God all night. But in the end, we get a sense of Jacob's fear and trembling, because it says, so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. He saw, and he knew. The text tells us he was bold and he wrestled with God. I won't let you go unless you bless me. But in the end, he says, oh boy, I knew my life was at risk. I was spared though. Exodus 24, 9 through 11. It's a, a story about the leaders of Israel seeing God. It says, Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet were something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. So the warning is there. They saw God, but God did not raise his hand against them. In fact, they could feast. Judges 6 22 through 23 talks about Gideon, that famous judge, and his encounter with God. It says this, When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So there's fear, there's trembling there in his voice. And then the verse 23 follows up with the Lord saying to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. Because Gideon knows those who see the Lord are in danger because of his holy presence and their sinfulness. Even in the book of Revelation, much, much time has passed since Peter encountered Jesus on the fishing boat. But in Revelation 1.17, the apostle John says this about seeing Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John knows. He knows when he encounters the majesty of Christ, the unveiled authority of Christ, he is in danger. But then the text continues and says, Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Like so many before him and after, Peter sees the majesty of God and he realizes the danger and he lives. First, I think we can learn this. God shows up in the ordinary. We so often forget this. We think we have to be in church to encounter God, and that God is found in a special pew or at a prayer rail. But God's in the fishing boats. He's under oak trees. He's in places where we hide from danger and feel fear. He's in our lonely moments. God is in the ordinary, but we often cannot see him. And we are better able to understand and see God when we obey and when you hear and obey his word. Secondly, I'd be reminded of this, though we may have fear and trembling, God is gracious. 
He gives life instead of death. So we hear the word. We obey the word. We understand God better. And then the last word. He calls out to us and we answer. We reply to the calling of God. The text tells us that Peter and all the fishermen with him, those other men, they left everything and followed him. At first, Peter just wants Jesus to leave him because he's felt the juxtaposition of his sin against the presence of God. He's not worthy. But Jesus transforms the moment. He will leave. He won't stay in Peter's fishing boat forever. But he invites Peter to follow and to stay near him. Peter is invited to live in the presence of God. Follow me. The text tells us that Peter and those with him left everything to follow Jesus. We often try to follow Jesus uh, half-heartedly. We follow, but we have a parachute on just in case it doesn't work out. Jesus is calling out to each one of you. Now, saying yes to Jesus doesn't mean you have to be perfect from this moment on and get everything just right for God. In fact, when you look at Peter's life, he's going to mess up a lot, but he continues this journey. He hears the word of God. He obeys the word of God. He understands the majesty of God a little more, and he begins to see Jesus' calling a little more clearly. And so then I think he does start again. He hears the word again, and he obeys the word again, and he understands the majesty of God a little more, and he hears his calling again, but a little bit more clearly. I think it's a little bit of a cycle that Peter goes through, and I think it's one we're invited to. Hear the word, obey the word, and when you do these, you will understand God a little more, and you can understand his calling a little more, and then you choose. Do I go? Do I follow? Or do I stop? Peter's striving not for success, but to follow Jesus persistently with excellence. And that's the question for us. Will you do this? Will you strive to follow Jesus with excellence? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to live with excellence for you, that we would grow in maturity. Lord, help us to feast on your word. Help us to do what you command in your word. Lord, help us to understand more and more of your majesty. Lord, I confess I have too small of a picture of you. Though you meet with me in the common parts of life, help me to see you as anything but common. Lord, I want us to be seen as a people who have left everything to follow you. Help us to do that in our church. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.